Well, for today, I want to start again in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to talk today about the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to read today what they are, but I want to talk about how they come about, and I want to contrast that over and against what Paul describes as the works of the flesh so that we can know what the fruits are and what they are not. And to do this, I want to start in verse 16 in Galatians 5 to get a proper context of this uh, subject of the fruits. Paul says there, Walk in the Spirit, gave a message on that, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would like to do. Now, incidentally, I've mentioned this before, but when you read this terminology, lust, or lusts against, we're talking here about control. In other words, the flesh seeks to control your life, your thinking, everything about you, but... As we know, the Holy Spirit wants to do that. And so you have really a battle here for control over you. And of course, ultimately, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of God revealing the truth, you and I are going to decide who does control us, whether it be the flesh or the Spirit. And we're going to decide that by who we yield to and where our faith is. And so we have described here in verse 16 and 17 a war that's going on. Flesh against spirit, we've read a lot about that, for instance, in Romans 7, where Paul gets into the same dynamic, where he describes the normal Christian life as being one where there's a war going on, flesh against spirit. But fortunately, the outcome of that war has already been decided if we will yield to the winning side. If you yield to Jesus, if you yield to the Holy Spirit, then the outcome is assured. You will end up in the will of God. You will end up in God's purpose. Now, if we don't yield, we won't end up in any of those things, but nevertheless, the victory is in place. Now, let's read on. That sets the stage. He's saying to us to walk in the Spirit, and I gave a sermon on that. And we saw how walking in the Spirit really means to walk or live in communion and fellowship with God. It really means to walk in what the Spirit is doing. If you're walking in the Spirit, then you are under the government of the Spirit. And you are in a process where the Spirit is working out the process God has in mind for you of revealing to you Christ of enhancing and edifying you in Christ in your relationship and communion with Him. All of that is what it means to walk in the Spirit. He's saying to do that and you won't walk in the flesh. So you yield to one and you won't be yielding to another. Funny how that works, isn't it? Jesus said many times, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. There's a principle in that. In other words, yield to God and you won't yield to the devil. It's just that simple. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, and so forth. And so if you want to know what the solution is to yielding to the flesh, 
Paul doesn't say, well, get a big hammer and fight the flesh. Not that you won't have to resist the flesh occasionally, and it won't seem like you're hitting with a hammer. But he says, if you want to know how to overcome the flesh, you do it by yielding to God. It isn't just fighting the bad, it's yielding to the good. And practically speaking, that means if you're being tempted, if you feel weak, if you feel like the flesh is trying to pull you in a direction, submit to God in the positive way. And that's a tremendous way to overcome the negative is by yielding to the positive. Well, that's a whole other subject, but let's read on here. In verse 18, But if you are led, and the word is governed, but if you are governed of the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now, having told us about this dynamic of flesh versus spirit, he's going to further describe each. He's going to start by describing the works of the flesh. Now, if we read down this list, there may be a few surprises for some of us. We don't usually think of some of these things as the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. In other words, they are seen And they are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I'm reading from the King James, lasciviousness. If that's a strange word to some people, that means anything goes. It means to have your life without restraint. That's not the Christian life, is it? This idea of the Christian life that because we're under grace, anything goes because God will love us anyway. Well, God will love us anyway. But if we're under the love of God, anything won't go. Because our love for God will prohibit anything goes, won't it? Can you go out and rob a bank and say you're doing it in the love of God? You can't do that. And so by definition, if we are governed by the Holy Spirit, if we love God... That's going to translate into conduct, isn't it? It's not going to translate into conduct where anything goes. It's going to translate into obedience, holiness, because that's what the Holy Spirit will bring us to. So, lasciviousness, anything goes, is a work of the flesh. Idolatry. For us today, that may not seem like it is an issue, But the fact is, if anything, but God is our God, we are in idolatry. And people have lots of things that they serve as their God. They don't necessarily call it their God, but whom you worship, you serve, Jesus said. What is it that makes us tick in life? That's what we serve. In essence, that's our God. It can be money. Jesus said can't serve God and mammon. It can be just about anything. There's lots of people that serve themselves. They're their own God. And we can do that in any number of ways. Reading on, we're in verse 20, idolatry. Witchcraft, we don't think of witchcraft today as a problem for Christians. Witchcraft is everywhere today in the body of Christ. Turn on Christian TV, you'll see witchcraft. There is another spirit at work in a lot of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with everybody that's on TV. I'm not saying that that's the case in all of these different churches and, all the, and just brush-stroking them all in the same boat. Don't hear me saying that. But I am saying that there's a lot of stuff that is passed off as the work of the Holy Spirit today that is not of the Holy Spirit. 
and it may very well fall into the category of witchcraft. And I could give great examples, but I don't have time for that today. Reading on, hatred. Now the next one is variance, and what that really means in the modern terminology is contention. When people are contending, especially in church, Galatians is written to a church. The context here is Christians. When people are contending in the body of Christ, Paul is saying there's something that's behind that. It isn't just the arguments that's wrong. It's wrong for that to be going on, but you've got to get at the root that's behind all of this, and it's the flesh. He says, emulations, which is jealousy, wrath, again, strife, divisions, heresies, Paul says, is a work of the flesh. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now, before I move on here, let's gather all these together and talk about the flesh for a moment. I've mentioned in other messages that really the definition of the flesh is when I am controlled by me. In essence, I walk according to the flesh when I walk according to me. How I see things, what I want, what my needs, I think, are, my attempts to satisfy all of that. In essence, it's not a pretty picture, but in essence, it's when I am the center of my own universe, and I act like it, and I operate like it, and I can do that without even being aware of it. In fact, a person who is born in Adam, and Jesus says that person is born of the flesh, is going to do that. That's all a person born in Adam can do. So consequently, everything that a person who is of the flesh sees, how they see it, how they perceive it, is according to whatever resources they bring to the table. That's why people in this world can only see selfishly. Of course, a lot of Christians walk according to the flesh, and we do too. But flesh is an egocentric dynamic. Now, of the spirit... And it's a process to get there. The Holy Spirit comes in and he takes this egocentrical person we are and he completely sets up a whole new government and a whole new dynamic so that instead of me at the center of my universe, Christ is. Now, you can see that if I am the center of my universe and God wants Jesus to be the center of my universe, my goodness, my whole center has got to change. My whole government's got to change. That's not going to be easy, is it? We're not talking about the need here of getting some theology. That will affirm what God's doing. We're talking the need here of me changing the entire center of gravity that makes me tick as a human being. Because if you are born of the flesh, and God wants you to be born again of the Spirit, you're talking about a pretty intense upheaval there, as far as the necessity of a process. To live to God's will unto His glory with Christ as the center of my universe, that sounds wonderful, and it is, but to get there takes the work of the cross. That's why we're going to read later that those who 
are in Christ and have the fruits of the Spirit have crucified the flesh. It takes a death to something. But all of these works of the flesh in and of themselves are bad works. That's a fact. They violate God's law. They violate the holiness of God. But behind all of the works of the flesh is this me thing from which all of them come. And that's the thing that God wants to get at. The flesh person that I am in Adam. That mentality, that engine, if I can put it that way. Get at that and the works of the flesh start to fall away. That's why Jesus said, a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. You've got to get at what kind of a tree you are. Fix that and the fruit will be there. This isn't about, if you want to combat works of the flesh... This isn't about simply getting a list of laws that will help you do different works. People have been trying that for 2,000 years. Just hand somebody a list of stuff to follow. They'll alter their conduct, and that's it. Well, then why did Jesus need to die? Now, we have to be born again of a completely different race, if I can put it that way, a spiritual race. Get a new nature, in other words, become a new tree. And then that new tree can bear the fruit we're going to read about here. Well, Paul goes on to say, concluding about this flesh stuff that he just mentioned, he lists all these and he says in verse 21, I told you this before and I am telling you now, they that which do such things cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it sounds like, if you just read this and don't understand what he's getting at, that if you and I, as a person who is saved, would happen to do any of these things, we have now lost our salvation. There have been some people that have concluded that from these verses, and, of course, that's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't say you're going to lose your salvation. He says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and there is a difference. And here's the difference, really. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is God's sovereignty over. It is Jesus as Lord over. Okay? And everything that comes with the package. Consequently, let's just take one of these examples out of uh, the list. Let's take envyings, jealousies, type of thing that can sometimes consume people, including even Christians. If I give myself over to jealousy or an envying in a particular matter, which goes back to something wrong in me, between me and God, really, if I give myself over to jealousy, there's something in my heart that is not right between me and my God. That's why I'm giving myself over to jealousy, right? If I do that, then isn't it a fact that the kingdom of God at that point is not governing me in that area? By definition, that's a fact. So in other words, because I have come under another government, jealousy, which is of the flesh, I'm not inheriting the kingdom of God in that area in my life. And Paul is simply saying you can't serve two masters in these areas in your life, even as a saved Christian. If you want to give yourself over to envyings, uncleanness, seditions, or whatever he's describing... 
He is saying then God is not governing you in that area. You are not inheriting the kingdom of God in that area because you've given yourself over to another kingdom, the kingdom of the flesh. And he is simply saying, listen, you are under a process of the Holy Spirit whereby he wants you to come under the kingdom of God. And if you do, you're going to inherit everything God has for you. But if you want to stop along the way and do this stuff, then you can't inherit what God has for you in those areas. If you want to be free from wrath and from heresies and from idolatries and inherit what God has for you instead, how are you going to get there by yielding to these terrible things? can't. Now again, if there's one thing we need to see about all of this, it is that all of this goes back to our relationship, to our fellowship with God. Again, this isn't simply about doing bad stuff. If that's all that it was, we'd have a problem, sure. But this is about not being rightly related to God. I have found, for instance, that my conduct, my attitudes, how I treat other people, how even my own internal life. It all comes back to my relationship with God. And I've said this before. What we are horizontally in this world, in our dealings with people, in church, and in everything else, is a direct result or an indirect result of who we are to God and who God is to us. You get the vertical relationship with God right. Surrender yourself to Him. Get on the altar, God, whatever it takes to make me right with you, that whole gamut of teaching that I've covered before. Line yourself up according to the will of God with Him, and you're going to get adjusted with every, to everybody else according to the will of God. But if you don't do that, then the works of the flesh are going to pop up because the Holy Spirit has no flow. How in the world can I live rightly with other people if I'm not rightly related to God. And yet for 2,000 years, Christian people have constantly developed systems, religious systems. You hear about accountability groups where they set up this Gestapo thing and this accountability thing where you call each other during the week and make sure you didn't sin that week. And that's supposed to keep everybody in line. You know what? You don't even need God to keep everybody in line with that tactic. Ego and pride itself will keep you in line because you don't want to have to confess a sin to somebody, so you'll obey. It has absolutely nothing to do with God. You can have an entire religious system and people will toe the line in it. They will be accountable to each other. They will submit to anything under the sun you would want to imagine to follow that religious system. And Jesus is over on the side saying, you know what, when you're done with all this baloney, I'll be waiting. Because you haven't gotten yourself right with me. I guarantee you that if an individual person gets right with Christ and submits to Him, their relationship with other Christians progressively will be adjusted and line up. You find out Jesus loves you You surrender to Jesus and His grace and His love and His truth. That will change you. And then you'll be 
and better relationships with people around you. But if you try to get the cart before the horse and develop systems to alter people's conduct, I used to call it trying to pound the flesh into submission with a hammer. You know, get a principle here, get a law here, get, get a little religious system and a hoop to jump through over here. It's like taking a big hammer and trying to beat back the flesh, control the flesh, keep the flesh in line. That's actually everything Paul's talking about in Galatians. That is not the true gospel. He is saying, come to God, come to the cross, and the axe will be put to the whole tree. And then what will emerge eventually are the fruits of the Spirit. So everything we are in the Christian life, and we're going to read about this in a minute directly, boils down to who Christ is to us and who we are to Him and our personal fellowship and relationship with Him. That's our base of operation, if I can put it that way. And if that isn't right, nothing else is going to be. Now, it may look right to other people, but God knows. And so we have to come back to identifying what vine we are abiding in, in other words. Is it Jesus or is it me? the flesh, because the tree is known by its fruits. So Paul is saying, listen, God has an inheritance for you that will span and infiltrate every avenue of your life, every avenue of your being. He wants to fill us all with Christ, that we might bear fruit. But he's saying, if you want to do all this stuff, something's wrong. If you're living in the flesh, something's wrong between you and God, and you cannot inherit what God has for you if you're wrapping yourself around all this stuff, if you're still living for yourself in this world. So he lists all these works, and he says you can't inherit the kingdom of God, you can't inherit what God has for you in these areas if you want these things. And he goes on to say, but verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh, all of the works of which he just mentioned, with all of its affections and lusts. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, let us not be jealous of each other, and so on. So we have this tremendous contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating because it's so important. Notice very closely that what Paul lists here in verse 22 are called fruits. What is a fruit in the natural world? A fruit is the outcome of what? Growth. If you look at any plant or tree that produces fruit, fruit's kind of the whole point, isn't it? That tree exists for the purpose, ultimately, of producing the fruit that corresponds to the kind of tree it is. Fruit is the outcome of a growth process. Now, I'm saying that to contrast that over and against a gift of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit are never gifts. 
God has a whole list of gifts of the Spirit a couple times in the Bible. Here, we read about fruits. Gifts are given by the grace of God. Fruits are grown as the outcome of the vine in which we are abiding. Draw an example. Let's take salvation. Salvation is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. You don't find salvation on this list of fruits. You don't grow into salvation. You grow because of salvation. So salvation is a gift. And if we had time, we could turn to the couple of places in the Bible where it says the gifts of the Spirit are these. And we could read those. They aren't fruits. They're given. Fruits aren't given. The potential is in Christ, but those things have to grow to be manifested. Now, if you take a piece of paper and you list on that piece of paper in one column all the gifts of the Spirit and in another column all the fruits of the Spirit, there is absolutely no overlap whatsoever except on one item. There is only one fruit of the Spirit that is also a gift. And that item is faith. God gives to each man a measure of faith. It's enough to turn to Christ when you're called. To Christ. You have to have that or you couldn't turn. So he gives a measure of faith to each man in order to turn. But in a very real sense of the word, you also have to grow in faith, don't you? You must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You must grow to believe on deeper and deeper levels. But other than faith, fruits and gifts are distinct in their category. Now, the question then arises, having understood all of that, how do you come to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And in order to find that out, all we need to do is turn to John 15. John 15 will tell us directly how to come to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the phrase, again, very important to notice the words that God uses because he doesn't make mistakes with vocabulary. He says the fruits of the Spirit. He doesn't say the fruits of us. Now, how do we reconcile this to the fact that we have to manifest these things. Well, we know, number one, that the Holy Spirit doesn't take us over and manifest fruits to the disregard of us, right? The Spirit of God, no matter how the Spirit of God might be manifesting himself, never takes anybody over and makes them do things. I have a whole catalog of videos of people rolling on the floor, howling like coyotes, clucking like chickens, marching around like Nazis, and I'm talking about the stuff that isn't disturbing. And they claim that this is what has happened when the Holy Spirit has fallen on them. Well, in the first place, the Holy Spirit doesn't make you act like an animal. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you. And I guarantee you that doesn't make you act like an animal. Whole other subject. But secondarily, are these people doing this because they want to? 
Bible says the Spirit of God is subject to the prophet of God. It says they're right in 1 Corinthians 14. It says that it's not going to make you do anything. So any claim to the effect, well, the Spirit came on me and I started hollering like a coyote, or I started barking like a dog, we're not talking there about the Holy Spirit. Because that's an absolute contradiction to Scripture. Now, are we talking about the devil possessing people? Not necessarily. People are quite capable of doing things out of their own flesh and silliness. That's possible too. So the Spirit never takes us over. And that is a fact. But in John 15, it's going to tell us how we can come to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's not by God taking us over. It's really by God living and manifesting Himself through us. But if you'll notice that, and we'll read it in a second here, in order for God to manifest Christ through us, something about us has to change so He can do that. If you and I are thoroughly entrenched in the flesh and guilty of all these works of the flesh, if that's where we're living, how's God going to work through us to manifest Christ? He's not going to violate our free will. He has to break that will, doesn't he? And again, we come back to the work of the cross. We come back to the necessity of you and I changing to where God can be seen through us. And that change is not so much in conduct at the root, that changes in relationship and fellowship with God at the root. Again, get rightly related to God and fruit will start to grow mentioned a couple weeks ago when I talked about this, the people that bear the fruit of the Spirit are probably the last ones that are conscious of it. You don't grow the fruit of the Spirit by grunting real hard or by acting a certain way. You grow to bear the fruit of the Spirit by abiding in Christ. And it'll happen. Let's read in John 15 and see that Jesus says this. <clears throat> he says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman or caretaker of this vineyard. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he purges, that it may bring forth more fruit. So in other words, whether you are in the will of God or out with regards to fruit-bearing, God's going to do some work. He's going to do some purging work. If you bear fruit, congratulations. You're a candidate for purging, so you'll bear more fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, then God, according to Jesus, is going to get rid of the stuff in your life that keeps you from bearing fruit. It's all unto redemption, the will of God, and fruit bearing. God's work in the Holy Spirit is unto that. And he says in verse 3, Now you are clean, and that word, I wish the King James had translated this properly, that word is that same word, purge. Now you are purged through the word I have spoken to you. How does God prune? He reveals truth. He brings a revelation of Jesus. He deals with us to adjust us according to the truth. Renews our mind brings us to conviction and repentance and so forth. That's the word God speaks to us, and it does that if we receive it. If we don't, well, we're not going to get the desired results. Verse 4. Abide in me. The word abide means live in me. 
fellowship and communion, in other words, in Christ. Commune in me, we could say, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Gets back to what I said just a few minutes ago. You can't take a bunch of branches, a bunch of Christians, and lay them around on the ground or plug them into each other somehow, even engraft them into each other, like people do in agriculture, and say, now grow. It won't work. And the reason it won't work is because none of them are hooked up to the vine. They're all dead things if they're not hooked up to the vine who is planted in the ground. You can take all kinds of branches and engraft them in each other, and for a while it might even look like a wonderful thing you've done. It might be pretty. It might look, wow, this is, this is going to bear great fruit because it's so big and beautiful. But what if the whole shebang, if I can put it that way, is not engrafted into the vine? There's no life then, is there? And so again, it's possible as a church, it's possible as a group of Christians or an individual Christian to develop all these little systems you think are going to work to produce life and produce fruit, but unless they are in the vine, in communion with Christ, in the truth, they're not going to produce fruit. Eventually what will happen is death will set in because there's no life source How many times God has told us in the Bible through the use of such phrases as Christ our life. The fact is, he's the only life we have if we're born again because we gave up ours at the cross. Thank God. And yet, in order for his life to be seen and flow, we have to abide in him, live in him, and be yielding to him. Okay, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, how many see a communion and oneness? He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So in other words, the only way that you and I can possibly come to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we find the answer right here. It's the outcome of communion with Christ. Not communion in Christ that is in word only, but communion in Christ that is a true oneness of purpose and really of resurrection life itself. And again, it comes back to surrender. It comes back to living for God's glory and God's will. And it will always be to our benefit. But it's very easy, is it not, to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm abiding in Christ, and then live any old way you want, and then at the end of that to be sort of confused as to why you're not bearing fruit. Well, you can't. Because you're living contrary to the vine in that case. See, a branch in a real vine can't live contrary to the vine, can it? It's actually part of the vine. It's part of the same life. So again, we see living in truth, living in obedience, living in faith, living in grace, and all of this. This is all what it means to abide in Christ. No branch ever made the vine change over to it. 
If you engraft a branch into a vine, and again, I'm not an expert in agriculture, and I don't know what the term is for this kind of thing, but if you engraft a branch into a vine, guess what changes over to the other side? The branch changes over to what the vine is. It takes on its life. At least that's the intention. And so we are under constant process and adjustment through the truth of coming over to where Jesus is in every way. And if we do, he starts to shine through us. Now Jesus goes on and he says, well, let's drop down to verse 7. If you abide in me, big word, if, there's a contingency there, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, this is one of those verses that we grab out of the Bible as an encouragement that God will answer prayer, and we ought to. It is an encouragement that God will answer prayer. But look what he's saying here. He's saying, if my words abide in you, you shall ask. So whose words are we using to ask? Our own? In other words, is Jesus giving us permission here to decide what we want and if we come to a conclusion as to what we want, God will hop to. No, he's saying, if my words really abide in you, in other words, if God's will, if God's mind have found a home in us, that's what it means to abide in us, if the will of God and the purpose of God has found a home in us to where they are able to live, then we're going to be asking out of that and what is our asking going to be in that case? We're going to be asking according to the will of God and according to what God wants. Now, there are some Christians who, when they hear the fact that God is only going to answer prayers according to His will, there are some Christians, when they hear that that's the only prayer God's going to answer, if it's His will, there are some Christians that kind of get disappointed over that. But I don't think that we're operating in much knowledge at that point. We're kind of ignorant. If we're disappointed that God's not going to answer our will, but wants to do His will, do we recognize that God knows best? Do we recognize that the worst thing that could happen would be that if God put aside His will and did ours? He's not going to do that normally. But there is nothing that is better for us than God's will. That's why when Jesus prayed the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, even he said, not my will, but thine. That's why when, God, when Jesus said to pray, he said, pray that thy kingdom come and thy will be done. There's no me in that anywhere, thank God. We haven't got a clue what we're asking for half the time because we don't know what's down the line. And we don't know what's in our own heart. So Jesus said, if my words have a home in you, if my will, if my presence has a home in you, you'll be on the same page with me. You will be asking according to my mind and according to my heart. And God says, you're asking according to my will. Well, of course I'll do it. It is my will. Now, if you read between the lines on this thing, it's an incredible, incredible revelation Really. Because what that means is 
that if you and I come to the place where we live for God's will, for God's glory, if we are sold out that we will not settle for less than God's will, what this means is that there is nothing that's going to stop it. We are assured that God will have His will in our life. It's a simple matter of Him bringing us over and getting us fit for it. You see, we like God to change circumstances according to what we say is His will. And we think about circumstances, we think about certain lots in life, relationships and all that. God changed this, God changed that. And a lot of times when we ask Him to do that, we're right about the fact that it needs to be changed. There are things that are happening in this world in situations and in circumstances that aren't right. And when we see those, we should pray. And sometimes God will just act and change them. But a lot of times, probably more often, especially when it's a personal thing, God's not simply going to change a circumstance around us. What He's going to do is change us. And then He can change the circumstance because we will be able to glorify God in it. The kingdom of God, the will of God, first comes in here inside of us. And once God has rule over us and he's governing us, then can we see that the circumstances around us can be brought under control there as well. And it might even be us that God wants to change the circumstance in his name. But either way, God wants us. But let's get back to the fruits He says in verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And really right here, if you read this verse, it says that one of the earmarks, one of the signs of discipleship, is that spiritual fruit is being born in the person of the disciple. Lots of times Christians think that the fruit we bear are the effects we have on other Christians or other people. Well, that's an indirect part of it. But I have heard people make the mistake of, of, of saying that if I get souls saved, that that fulfills this verse, that I'm bearing fruit. Well, that really isn't the point here. This is talking about an individual disciple and then by extension a church and the body of Christ, manifesting Jesus Christ, being a living witness unto Christ. And then how many see if you're that, souls are going to get saved. But it's the indirect result, it isn't the direct. I've said before, nothing worse than a bunch of people trying to get others saved when they themselves are out of the will of God. You know, what do we want to do? Go out and get other people out of God's will like we are? Now again, get the vertical relationship right between you personally and God, and then God can use you to save souls because you are a living witness and bearing fruit. But it's not too good to get the cart before the horse on that. So what we see in all of this, really, and it goes back to that phrase, the fruits of the Spirit, we see that the fruits of the Holy Spirit the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance that we read in Galatians 5. Those are really the character, the life of Christ being manifested through his people. 
They are not personality development. You can develop personality and not even know Christ. People do it all the time. They go to Dale Carnegie. You can work on your personality with a good cabinet of drugs. Take an antidepressant or something. That'll do the trick if, if, if that's what all this is about. People can have a good personality because life is going well. Nothing's stirring up the, the badness in them. Now this is about people who are rightly related to God and in communion with Him. In other words, abiding in the vine. And the result of that is that Christ begins to shine through them. If you discover Christ and begin to know His love, you're going to exhibit love. You're going to exhibit love whether you like it or not, if you could put it that way. It's just the way it is. And if we turn back to Galatians here for a second and look at some of these fruits, we can, we can see how that works. Again, this is Galatians 5.22. At the top of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 John says... We love Him because He first loved us. And of course, by extension, we love others because He first loved us. If you and I think that we can receive the love of God because we have first loved others, go ahead and try. It's a dead end. You don't have anything to work with. You have to receive something from God first before you can have it to give to others. You can't earn it by loving others. And then say, okay, God, I loved others, now love me. Well, that's legalism. That's what the Galatians did. This has to come back to the vertical first. So once we see and receive the love of God, and rest in that, and live in that, abide in that portion of the vine, if I can put it that way, we will begin to more easily and progressively love others. It just happens that way. Get the vertical right, the horizontal comes into line over the course of time. Joy, we rejoice in the Lord. Peace, well you can't have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. So again, get peace with God, in other words, surrender. And the peace of God will keep your heart and mind in Christ. And then people will look at you, hopefully, eventually, and say, boy, that person has a peace about them that I can't explain. Remember how Paul used that phrase, the peace of God, which is above and beyond all understanding. It's not a peace that is based in necessarily rational math. Have you ever known somebody that has a life that's filled with conflict and difficulty, a Christian, and yet they're at peace the peace of God. And that's because they are detached from all of those trials and abiding in the vine. That's the source of life, the vine. That's where the peace comes from, that communion with the vine. All the rest, if I can put it this way, is background noise. It's there. It gets to us once in a while, sometimes a lot. But it's just a bunch of background noise of circumstance and of the enemy. But if we're abiding in the vine to a greater extent as we go on in Christ, he'll be the basis of our peace. He that puts their trust in the Lord, the psalm says, shall be as Mount Zion, 
which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. In the end, if our faith is in Christ, we won't be moved, because our faith is in He that cannot be moved. And it should get there eventually. Long-suffering, which is a matter of waiting on the Lord. All these things, as we see, are a matter of our communion and relationship with God. See, in Christianity today, and this has happened throughout the centuries, Christians think that the fruits of the Spirit are a matter of us going through some class to develop our personality. We go to, Christians go to Christian psychologists or get into anger management and things. Again, you don't need to know Christ for that. Jesus said, I've already overcome that by my cross. Get into business with me and it'll not only be dealt with, it'll be permanent and eternal and you'll receive life as a substitute for what ailed you before. Gentleness, goodness, which is good in everything, in your actions, in your words. It just flows through because you're abiding in He that is good. Faith, meekness is a good one. We think meekness is a matter of bowing your head and mumbling and acting as if, you know, we're just, you know, don't have any pride or something like that. Again, you don't need God for that. People have, have done that to act religious for 2,000 years. Meekness, the definition of it, when it comes right down to it, is putting God first. You retire and let God have His way. Again, I could mention all kinds of systems that Christians have created to try to develop things like humility and meekness. I heard one one time, a guy named Bill Gothard, who is a legalistic heretic. Sorry to use such strong language, but he is. He does a lot of damage in the body of Christ. He has, as his claim to fame and core of his theology, submission to authority. And he says that if you submit to authority, right or wrong, that will keep you humble. That will work humility into your system. No, it won't. won't do anything along that line. What it will do, it might make you think you're humble because you kept a law. You get right with God, you submit to Him and come under the cross. You see the greatness of Jesus Christ. Again, that vertical relationship. If we do that, we'll be humble. And then can we see at that point, we're not going to rebel against authority. We're going to line up with authority the way God wants us to. And we will submit where God wants us to submit. And i got to tell you, there may be times when we will defy authority if that has to be. The will of God. They did in the book of Acts. They told them to quit preaching the gospel. They said, we can't. We have to obey God rather than men. So humility is the result of seeing Jesus. Meekness is the result, having seen Jesus, of putting God first. And then our human relationships line up. We see the truth, and then we walk according to it in everything. So he lists these fruits of the Spirit of God. And there are a whole bunch of them, and every one of them could merit a message. Now, one other thing for today. Paul has contrasted flesh against the Spirit. I'm going to talk just for a moment a little bit more about the possibility of the flesh mimicking some of these fruits of the Spirit. We all know people, some of them may be heretics, atheists, 
They may not believe Christ is God or even their Savior. And isn't it true that some of those people can seem like they're the most giving, charitable, do-gooders on the face of the earth? Some of them might even, if you're just looking at the works, put Christians to shame. How can they be that way? If they're not in Christ, because it seems like what they're exhibiting is the fruit of the Spirit. Well, just for about five minutes, I want to turn real quick back to Genesis chapter 3 as a basis. And I just want to look at two verses here at the end of Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. I want to look at two descriptions of Adam. The first description of Adam is before he sinned. The second description of Adam is after he sinned. Keep that in mind. Genesis 2.25, which is Adam before he sinned, God says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, but were not ashamed. Now, when God created them, he said it was good. And this is Adam before the sin, so we know that what's being described here is good. In fact, it is a description of God's original intention and design of man. God originally intended man as a creature to be naked and yet unashamed. What does that mean? Well, to be naked means there's nothing in us at all as a resource for life, for truth, for anything. Now, why was Adam, if that's what he was like, naked, unashamed? It was because everything he needed in those areas was being satisfied through God. In other words, we have a description of a completely dependent creature here with nothing in himself as a resource, but who is barely conscious of it. And the reason he was barely conscious of it was that he was abiding in the vine. If I can bring John 15 uh, into it. If you're a branch, you have no life in yourself. But if you're plugged into the vine, if you're abiding in the vine in whom there is all life, then you will be naked But you won't be ashamed because you will have all of you filled with the life of God. That was Adam before the sin. Adam, after the sin, we read in Genesis 3, 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons to cover this nakedness. And in verse 9, God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So now Adam is still naked. That didn't change. But now he's ashamed. Why? Well, because he's not abiding in the vine anymore. In other words, God made man naked. Have we recognized that God made man to always abide in him? or to turn it around in a negative sense, there is nothing about a human being, saved or unsaved, that God ever built into that human being whereby that human being could live or was intended to live independent from God. Man was made dependent. God made him that way and said it was good. God made man naked. Now what happens when a creature that is a dependent creature, naked, who cannot live except he be dependent. What happens when he walks away from God? Well, he's out there, isn't he? On his own. 
He no longer has a source of life and truth. He's still naked. In fact, he's tormented by his nakedness because he was never made to be independent. And so what does Adam begin to do? He begins to try to cover up the nakedness and fix it with fig leaves. Now, the reason I covered all that was to get at this flesh thing. Once Adam severed himself from the vine and cut himself off from the source of all life and truth and from all resource for living, once he did that, he had to develop his own. We see it here portrayed in the way of fig leaves. But what you see here in Adam after the sin is you now have a creature who is in the flesh. He is independent from God by his own choice and he's on his own to try to make do through life. And he's going to try to compensate. He's going to have this gigantic hole in his heart. Some people have tried to describe it that way. You are born with a big hole in your heart that only God can fill. But we try to fill it with everything else, don't we? Or to use the Genesis example, we're born naked and we're trying to cover that nakedness with everything else. And only Jesus can cover it. Well, when you and I are born into this world, we are born naked and ashamed. We are tormented by the fact that we are incomplete. That's what ails people. We're dead spiritually, and we're tormented by it. We call that torment, ego, pride, whatever you want to call it. But is it not a fact that most human beings, all human beings, until they meet Christ, walk through life trying to fix themselves somehow. And they may not even describe it as that. Even those who are arrogant, self-sufficient, and don't seem to have a care in the world are exactly the same. The only difference is they have deluded themselves into thinking their fig leaves have done a good job. But they are just the same as those who are down on themselves or have low self-esteem. They haven't made good fig leaves. And so they feel insufficient. But that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What Adam became after the sin is what we are. We didn't decide it. We got born as that. And that's what we're going to be until we are set free. Now, consequently, what happens is that depending on the family into which you're born, depending upon your environment, and certainly depending upon your choices, personally speaking, you are born as, as a piece of flesh, spiritually and physically, into this world of the flesh. You're naked. You have a big hole in your heart. It's empty. It's tormenting you. You are going to develop your particular version of the flesh throughout life by trying to fix that. And so, if you're unsaved and you're an adult, let's say, I could look at you, and I could look in the mirror if I wanted to before I was saved, and I could say what I am looking at is a person who is completely in the flesh, talking about unsaved people, completely in the flesh, who has throughout life managed to cover his nakedness with a certain kind of fig leaf that you thought were going to work, was going to work to do the job. And so we kind of mold ourselves in this flesh life that we have when we don't know Jesus according to whatever we think is going to do the trick to appease our own conscience to appease our own dissatisfaction with ourselves. 
Now, some people's fig leaves are very pretty. Some some of them look like love. Some of them look like peace. Some of them look like patience. Some fig leaves are very charitable. And they can be passed off, even in Christian people, as being a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said no. He said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And what that tells me, and it's a very, very dogmatic statement, but all Christians today need to come to terms with it because it's the truth. That means if a person is not saved, it doesn't matter what good they're doing, that is not of the Spirit of God. It can't be. The Spirit isn't in them. It isn't the fruit of the Holy Spirit. At best, it is a fig leaf doing good things. And I'm not necessarily putting down the good thing. If an unsaved person wants to give to charity, that's great. But does that save them? In the end, God's going to ask them, Who is Jesus to you? Oh, but God, I gave to charity. Who is Jesus to you? Oh, but God, I, you know, I, I, I gave to my neighbor. I loved my neighbor. Who is Jesus to you? Well, I don't believe in him. Can we see where it comes back to again? It comes back to our personal accountability to God. Read last week the $64 billion question from Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? In the end, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? And so the fruit of the Spirit that even unbelievers at times can seem to have, if it's not the outcome of a relationship with God, if it's not the outcome, as Jesus said, of abiding in the vine, then it may be good, humanly speaking, but it's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it is of an old creation. It's of a bad tree, ultimately. Isn't it funny how fruit inspection... You know how Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits? Isn't it funny how fruit inspection can become very subjective? I'll give you one example and then I'll close for today. I had a, a grandfather that lived into his 90s. And one day he came over to our house with a big bag of oranges in a plastic bag. It's kind of humorous what happened, but there's a big lesson in it. My grandfather in his 90s was, his eyesight was really failing him. And he brought this bag of oranges into our house. He wanted to give them to us. He handed this bag of oranges to my mother at the time, and he said, just look at these oranges, how fantastic they are. I guess he picked them from a tree. And he was all happy with himself because of this fantastic gift he gave her. And you look at those oranges, and they were so moldy, it was black and green, and it was just awful. And of course, she took them, she didn't want to offend him. But can we see how fruit inspection can be subjective? Do you see what I'm getting at there? In other words, if you don't have the eyesight to know what the fruit of God really is, you can look at rotten fruit and call it good. I will guarantee you that every Jehovah Witness on the planet will quote the scripture, by their fruit you will know them, and they will say, look at our church and what great fruit there is. And yet it's filled with heresy. You see that everywhere today. People 
define fruit based on their knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what if that knowledge of Christ isn't right? Then their fruit inspection will be just as off the track. So what's the key there? The key there is to know Jesus. The key there is to turn to God with a pure heart and say, God, I'm yours. Whatever it takes, cause me to know Christ. And so the fruits of the Holy Spirit are exactly what the Bible says. They are of the Holy Spirit. They are the result of you and I abiding in Christ, of giving ourselves to Him, of being in communion with Him, and then our personality isn't developed. No, Christ is seen through our personality and through ourselves, but it's of Him because it is of the Holy Spirit. It is the result of a relationship or a communion with God. 